Hey gang, welcome back to Voices in My Head. Just a couple of quick housekeeping things before we start. I hope you've been enjoying Voices in My Head and all the guests that we've been having week after week on this podcast. And if you are, would you please go to iTunes and leave us a podcast review for this podcast. It helps us to gain visibility, it helps us to get more listeners, and it helps me to know what kind of shows you've been enjoying and what you'd like to hear more of. Secondly, if you're able to help out at all in the way of sponsorship, you can go to rickleejames.com or voicesinmyheadpodcast.com, click on the tip jar and sponsorship link, and you can find out there how to give to this podcast. Uh, And I don't like to just ask for something for nothing. So since it costs roughly $11 a show in order to produce this podcast, if you donate $11 or more, I'm going to send you a way to get 11 free songs that I've never before released. 11 free tracks anyway. Some of them are songs I've released, but these are like live recordings, and some of them are unreleased songs. Some of them are things that pertain specifically to the podcast you can't get anywhere else. They're not on CDs, they're not on iTunes, they're not on the internet anywhere, except with this code that I'm going to give you. So if you donate $11 or more, you get 11 tracks. So just my way of saying thank you, and I hope you'll be able to support us. Now, with that being out of the way, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here at Voices in My Head. Live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick James and you're listening to Voices in My Head. Welcome back, listeners, to episode number 55 of Voices in My Head. I am Rick Lee James, your host on this journey. We've got a lot in this show today, and we've got a lot of answers to the question of the week. We're going to be talking about the soul today. And the inspiration of this conversation was a recent storyline in the Amazing Spider-Man comics. I just want to encourage you, if you're not a comic book person, hold on through about the first five minutes of our discussion today, because after that we're going to be getting into our real uh, topic, which is the soul and a biblical understanding of what that means. So I think you're going to really enjoy that today. First off, we have question of the week and we're going to get straight to that now. Question of the week. The question of the week for this week was who comes to mind when you think of a truly soulful musician? The answers are many, and I'm going to clip through them quick as I can here. Alex Connell says Nora Jones and Diana Krall. Kevin Moan says Russ Taff and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Chris Reinhardt simply says the blues. I don't know if that's a band or if he just means the music style, but thanks, Chris. Leah Level says Fiona Apple, Josh Garrels. Soulful makes me think... Uh, more of intent. Very, very good observation. Chad Kaminsky says Stevie Wonder, David Phelps, Harry Connick Jr. Brandon Sipes, who uh, is not only a great friend but has some great taste in music, he says Ray LaMontagne, uh, love Ray. Glenn Hansard, I agree again. Karen Burquist from Over the Rhine, still agreeing. Damian Rice, agree. Robert Randolph, and I should add the family band in there as well. The Civil Wars, Janelle Monet and Mark Broussard. Great list of soulful musicians, Brandon. Ken Dixon says Al Green, James Brown, Anita Baker, Marvin Gaye, Teddy Pendergrass, and Barry White. 
Court Donner, Courtney Donner says, Jeffrey Gaines, though I also second Glenn Hansard. And who doesn't? Glenn Hansard's amazing. Chip Fountain says, at last, Etta James. Uh, that's a great song. Matthew Cole says, Louis Armstrong and Israel, comma, 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 chameleon. Guess it's just that song. Um, but Matt will talk more about that. He's our guest today on the show. Tony James says, Etta James is one of my favorite of all times. I think she just likes the James name. Cheryl Wilson early says Lou Rawls, Barry White, and Marvin Gaye. Wow, she's into those uh, those soulful romantic guys. So uh, Leland Legg, Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. David Sanders says Louis Armstrong, Josh Ledette, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, Michael Bolton, Aretha Franklin, Aaron Neville, and Al Green. You know, after hearing this list of answers to Question of the Week, I want to go listen to some great soulful music. And uh, it makes me want to get into a conversation about the soul, which is actually our next topic of today. So thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for answering this week's Question of the Week. Question of the Week. Well, we're getting right into it today. Here's my conversation with Pastor Matthew Cole from Lexington, Kentucky. We're talking about the soul and Spider-Man. So I guess we'll call this one the soul of Spider-Man. Hope you enjoy our conversation. My guest today might as well be my co-host here on the Voices in My Head podcast. This is, I believe, his fourth time on the show today. He is Reverend Matthew Cole. He's the pastor at Calvary Church of the Nazarene in Lexington, Kentucky. If you're in the Lexington, Kentucky area, I would encourage you to check out his church. He's a wonderful preacher. He does a great job pastoring his people. And he's also, the reason I have him on today... Beside from being a great theologian, he is also an Amazing Spider-Man fan. And there is a storyline that has recently happened in The Amazing Spider-Man, uh, which actually led to a new series that leads us to our topic of discussion today, which is the soul. So it's my pleasure to invite, welcome, I can't talk today, I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's my pleasure to welcome Matthew Cole once again to Voices in My Head. It is great to be here, and I greatly appreciate the uh, the introduction. Um, actually, want to uh, to add that uh, you have two guests on today. My uh, youngest daughter Madeline is here with us. So, if you occasionally hear someone that sounds like Gollum in the background, it's her growling at the computer. That's great. And I should also preface too that I was up until very early this morning uh, or late last night, however you want to say, late early. Uh, recording music, and so if my words don't come out as smoothly as they should, well, you're used to that anyway because you've heard this podcast. So, um, but today I'm really excited to have you here, and we're going to be talking about first of all the Amazing Spider-Man, but mostly we're going to be talking about the soul and what that means. So, how should we start this? Oh, wait, I know how we should start it. Let's start it with something completely not about either of those things. Let's ask today's question of the week to Matthew Cole. Uh, today's question of the week, Mr. Cole, was, who do you think of when you think of a soulful musician? Well, um, before I answer that, I just want to throw in the little Pavlov's dog type thing. As soon as you, uh, how I've been conditioned by listening to your podcast, as soon as you said, let's do question of the week, I actually was pausing, waiting for the music. Um, so <laughs> that the, only, uh, that so only happens in the pre-show stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, as far as uh, most who I think of whenever I think of a soulful musician, either uh, Louis Armstrong 
or the uh, uh, Samoan slash Hawaiian uh, gentleman Israel, who's begins with a K. I can't pronounce his last name, but who redid uh, Beautiful World and and kind of mixed it with uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Um, both of those that would be kind of a close tie as far as who I, who comes to mind whenever I think of a soulful musician. I'm gonna take a stab at his name and call it Israel Kamakawi uh, Wheel. No, that wasn't even close. I, I think what we said before the show, Kama 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 Chameleon, is just about as good as anything we could come up with. So, uh, but yeah, I love his Over the Rainbow rendition. I think that's one of the most beautiful songs. And and didn't even realize until later on, after he had passed away, that he was this big sumo wrestler looking guy, uh, playing a little ukulele and singing somewhere over the rainbow. Pretty Which much. watching him hold the ukulele is quite a hilarious thing. It's like watching, <laughs> you know, the uh, the giant play some, you know, little Lilliputians guitar. Very true. Yeah, it is uh, quite a sight to behold for sure. You're just not used to seeing that kind of thing. But well, uh, the, the reason I asked the question, as I said earlier, about who you think of as a soulful musician, because there's a lot of connotations, especially in our culture today, because we seem like we're a melting pot of so many different cultures coming together and so many different understandings. When we say the word soul, you could probably ask 10 different people and get probably 10 different definitions. Um, for some, it will be a soulful musician, someone that just has this real passion and really um, you know, just gets to your heart and cuts to the core of who you are when they're singing or some kind of a, a, a writer that they say has you know, this am- amazing amount of soul in their work. Um, and so there's connotations like that that seem to be artistic. There's other more spiritual connotations that actually have to do with a lot of people's understanding of the afterlife and to my you know not actually happy surprise but uh, recently in the storyline of amazing spider-man they recently uh, and, and this is going to be no surprise to any of my guests because uh, they know i'm a big comic book nerd but recently they ended the series of amazing spider-man and uh, it ended with issue number 700 so that they could start a new series called the superior spider-man and i wonder matt would you like to give a quick synopsis of that storyline or would you like me to or you want to do it together or how should we do um, probably bounce back and forth a little bit I, I do want to begin by saying i'm i'm still uh in mourning uh super or spider-man has always been my hero if they want to yeah. you know kill off superman or batman have at it there's 75 more dimensions he'll pop up in anyway but yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, I've always just 52 uh, dimensions not seven you know <laughs> I was that, i'm sorry I, I lost count um but uh, uh i just uh i've always been a, a huge spider-man fan and it was kind of heartbreaking that they actually would kill him off but um spoilers the, spoilers yeah sorry <laughs> i know i'm kidding um, we're, we're gonna be by the way yeah, we should we should tell the listeners that if you are a comic book reader and haven't read this there's going to be lots of spoilers today we're not going to tiptoe around what's in the issue so anyway continue. <laughs> it's kind of hard to talk about our topic yeah. without getting to the fact of right of, dealing with his death but uh there is a uh, um um basically the the storyline itself starts in the amazing spider-man 698 and then follows up the last those last four final issues of the amazing spider-man and carries over into uh, superior spider-man number one and follows a storyline that in the pr- uh, prior issues um he had more or less defeated Doc Ock, had the opportunity to actually even kill Doc Ock, but takes him uh, to the raft to be imprisoned while he's there. Uh, they think that he's going to lose him. He makes one last request, and he gets out Peter Parker's name. 
the Avengers call him to come to the island where you find out in this moment that um, there is this uh, brain switch, uh, that the identity memories of everything that was Peter Parker now belong to Doc Ock, and the actual um, mind themselves um, of, of the two characters are switched. So now the mind of Doc Ock is in Peter Parker, of course, with his... Uh, uh, memories, but the mind of Peter Parker is now in the body of Doc Ock with his memories. Um, you have uh, a basic storyline takes a, a little bit for the everything to play out, but Doc Ock ends up dying, hence Peter Parker in that body ends up dying, and now Doc Ock lives on in Peter Parker's body. Exactly, and and it, it's it's been for I don't know how many years now they've been doing this storyline. Uh, Doctor Octopus has been dying of cancer, and uh, they've, in my opinion, they've they really kind of ruined the character because he, I mean, and this is obviously very subjective. A lot of people love that storyline, but um, every time he's appeared in the last few years, he's been pretty much useless except for his octopus arms, and they've had him wrapped up in what looks like a huge straitjacket, but it actually looks like a big diaper. Like, <laughs> so I always call him Diaper Ock because he. He has looked like for some time he's been wearing a, a you know full body diaper um, and and it's just been kind of weird and and he's been dying of cancer and so as Doc Ock like you said he's lying on this table he's got just hours left to live and he's figured out a way to steal Peter Parker's brain and put it in his body and and then Doc Ock is now in Spider Man's body. So um, you can read the storyline for yourself if you haven't read it. It's it's kind of interesting. To me, it was not a great ending for you know Peter Parker. I think back to when Superman died and it was like the whole world stood still. And this one, I'm kind of like, huh? Why is why is Otto Octavius a better Spider-Man than Peter Parker is? But anyway, um, let me just read the the last line or it's very close to the last line of issue number 700 um i don't understand what happens exactly um spider-man and doc ock are fighting each other although in each other's bodies when they're doing this so they're literally fighting themselves and uh, they get thrown out of a window um spider-man in dr octopus's body has basically you know he's falling down from this huge skyscraper and Spider-Man, you know, vice versa, as we described, they hit the ground and um, and Spider-Man dies. But somehow this flash of, I don't know if it's conscience, memory, whatever it is, flashes into Spider-Man's body, which now possesses Dr. Octopus's brain. And uh, it somehow turns him in like a second and a half. It turns Spider-Ock good. <laughs> and he says, he says... Farewell, Peter Parker. Know this. I will carry on in your name. You may be leaving this world, but you are not leaving it to a villain. I swear I will be Spider-Man. Better yet, with my unparalleled genius and my boundless ambition, I will be a better Spider-Man than you ever were. From this day forth, I shall become the superior Spider-Man. And uh, leads into the next issue, which I, I haven't really been collecting it. I read it, but I didn't buy it. Um, Sorry, comic shop guys. Thanks for letting me read it, but I just wasn't interested. <laughs> but now there's this kind of plot twist. We think that Peter Parker is dead, 
And uh, did did you want to kind of explain what happens at the end of Superior? I, I'm talking too much here. I didn't want to. The, uh, um, I, I was impressed that it almost sounded like they had a little plug in there for the Superior Spider-Man, the way that Doc Ock, you know, got those final lines in. Oh, it uh, was a plug, big time. <laughs> <laughs> you get into uh, the Superior Spider-Man, and um, you you see him actually taking on in that first uh, issue the Sinister Six, which. Um, in the uh, prior to in the Amazing Spider-Man line and, and Marvel lines, uh, m- more often than not, Doc Ock is sort of the head of the Sinister Six. Right. And um, and he takes him out. And there's this scene towards the end of um, Superior Spider-Man number one where he has this moment um, where basically he is very much thinking, speaking, acting um, as you would expect Doc Ock to act. Um uh, proving himself to be the absolute superior and, 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 and actually is just about to take the life of one of the Sinister Six. Um, I can't even remember which one it was, um, right off the top of my head. I can't uh, remember his name either. But. Uh, the guy with the boomerangs, but I can't think of his name right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he, he comes down just about ready to make that, that killing strike and you see this translucent, uh, hand. And uh, holding the arm back and this translucent Peter Parker suddenly seems to be underlying, even though uh, uh, the Doc Ock mind isn't totally aware he's there. There is this translucent um, Peter Parker in the background that basically says, you know, I'm still here. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still a presence. And and it's like it's without without Doc Ock's knowledge, Peter Parker is there steering him, you know. And it, it it's illustrated in the in the comic book. It almost looks like if you've seen Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back, when you see a dead Jedi, you see him as sort of this blue uh hologram figure. And yeah. he looks exactly like that in the comic. And uh, it, it almost seems to me like now that Marvel owns not only – I mean now that Disney not only owns Marvel but now owns Lucasfilm, it's almost like they decided we're going to do a Jedi Peter Parker that's going to be the conscience of <laughs> of Doc Ock in Spider-Man's body. Was anybody else confused yet? Um, anyway uh, – Oh, one other thought. One of my cousins, uh, his name is Vaughn, last night said, yeah, I saw this storyline in the 70s in DC Comics when it was called Firestorm and uh, wasn't real impressed then either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, well, all right. If, if you're confused and you've been following us so far and you haven't really got a lot of interest in Spider-Man, well, hold on because – this podcast really isn't about Spider-Man, but in this storyline, the reason that we're having this conversation, just like a lot of stories get us thinking, there's a lot of movies, a lot of novels, um, sometimes an article we might read somewhere. Just like that, I go to comic books sometimes and I read a storyline that makes me think, oh, there's some theological significance we should talk about here. So we're not really talking about Spider-Man today as much as this idea of, is there a soul that can be transferred or, you know, some mind that uh, can be transferred from one person to another. Um, is there a soul there that is, you know, like like in this comic, we're not aware of really, but somehow it's holding us back or that is somehow sinful or noble or something that actually we need to get taken care of. So I guess the, the first thing we should deal with today is 
what is the soul? What does this mean? So to do that, we're going to be talking today as Christians and uh, people who love theology, and uh, we're going to try to keep it as uh, as much for layman as we can today in our conversation. But I want to talk about first about the soul. Matthew, I know that you can probably explain this pretty well because you were uh, – I, I think I could just call you a Hebrew scholar because you did a very good job whenever we were in college together. Can you explain to us – the the Hebrew word uh, that we traditionally translate as soul, where it starts in the Old Testament, and uh, just explain maybe this whole idea of what's called nephesh to us. Yeah, the, as you said, the word that is there in, in the uh, the Hebrew text is the nephesh, and and it has a broad range of how it is translated, especially what it's connected to um, when it when it's sort of pulled out and standing alone, uh, it is very often uh, translated as soul, which leads us into a very old both theological uh, debate as well as a philosophical debate. Uh, for those that are coming at this from a theological standpoint, this is what is known as the soul-body debate and and how much presence or how much reality there is uh, a distinction between the actual body itself and this presence or this inner type of soul that is making decisions or is influential or is being influenced and to what degree those two things both affect one another and inversely are affected by one another. The philosophical side of this argument is oftentimes called the mind-brain debate. Is there a separation between the actual thoughts and uh, concepts, uh, way that we think of things that is separate from the actual body itself, the brain that comes up with these thoughts. Could you exist beyond, in some way, your thoughts, your memories, your personality, beyond the organ that produces the synapses, the um, uh, all the neuro, uh, neurons and axions and all the stuff that makes that stuff work in the brain that I'm not a, uh, I, I never did very well at A and P. So um, I'm gonna let the anatomy and physiology people, you know, go a little bit farther with that. But um, I'm just glad there... you explained what A and P was because I didn't know that abbreviation. So it's no problem. <laughs> Um, I, I can I can cheat by looking at her uh, textbooks over here in the office. <laughs> yeah, but but that mentality that there is an existence of self that is beyond the actual body itself, and and again, like I said, that that carries back over into the theological question of this Jewish concept of the nephesh, this Jewish concept that is oftentimes translated soul when it is held in and of itself, but every. Uh, so many other times, whenever you see it translated in connection with other Hebrew terms, uh, yedid nefesh, it's often translated as life, um, and so that's that's one of the big differences that you will that you'll see. Pekuik uh, nefesh, which is the concept of the preservation of human life, uh, puts it back in the context of life itself, and not something um, quite so. Uh, uh, abstract or something that you could just pull out as easy as saying, oh, it's talking about the soul disembodied. All right. And so to really make this as, as simple as we can, biblically, right from the start in Genesis, the soul, the nephesh, uh, it refers to a living, breathing, conscious body rather than an immortal soul. I really don't think 
the Bible has much to say about an immortal soul. I think I think Plato has a lot to say about it, and yeah. the idea of that. But that's not really a Christian reference or even a a Jewish reference. It's just more um, second and third century. Um, that kind of Hellenistic thought started creeping into the church, and uh, it it made such a uh, an overcoming change today. But I, I really want us to think about this idea for a second, because when we think soul. Nephish can actually mean throat, right, Matt? That's Correct. It. Okay, now think about this for just a second, um, listeners. I'm, I know Matt's thought through these things before. But if you want to think about soul in a biblical frame of mind and, and what soul is, think about God as being the breath of life. And actually the word spirit is is really interchangeable with the meaning of, of the word breath. So literally when, when God is creating humankind in Genesis and and again uh, he's breathing life you know into this lifeless body that he created of Adam he was just basically dust and God breathes life which is a very interesting concept so the word nephish which can mean throat which you know we breathe through our lungs through our throat it's it's as if to say the only life that is in us is the life that God gives, you know, and that he creates not someone with this separate immortal soul, but he creates us as whole beings that as we come into our being, our being is there simply because of the life breathe, the, the breathed life that God gives to us. Is that a, is that a good way of me explaining that? Does that make sense to you, Matt? Um, the, the concept that you're talking about there, the Ruach is the, is the Hebrew concept that can be translated breath. It can be translated spirit. It can also be translated wind. Uh, the, the wind of God blowing, uh, from the four corners that you see in the, uh, the Ezekiel passage of the dry bones, the, uh, spirit of God that is upon the waters there at creation, the breath of God that is breathed into man's nostrils later in the story of creation. All of those terms are Ruach. Uh, this idea of breath, wind, spirit. Um, I, I think that you're definitely along those lines, and, and, and I would actually broaden that, that one of the images that you see within the Psalms um, over and over again is this idea that that part of what makes humanity distinct in creation and not to put humanity as though it's the only part of creation that matters because even in humankind's creation, we are created to be stewards and caretakers of the rest of the cosmos, uh, to be God's zealum or image here um, that, that says this is his kingdom and he's left us to be his stewards, his caretakers, and he's overseeing us as we, um, as we oversee and take care of creation, cosmos. Um, but there's also this idea with the nephish being located in the throat. This is also the concept of voice or speech, uh, that, that the ability to speak as God speaks, the ability to, to speak creatively, uh, to speak in such a way that is abstract, uh, to be able to talk about things that do not exist yet, uh, but yet can be coming into existence and to be able to talk of those things that were at one point not existent, but are existent. This concept to speak 
um, is a, is a very powerful uh, uh, imagery as well that's directly connected to the nephesh, and and you you see it especially in Psalms where it says you know things like and day pours forth speech into day and night into night, but their words are not heard, and that we are this part of creation that can communicate uh, who we are and identity through our speech, and and that's the way that God does, and and you know the very concept the the very idea of a God who says thus saith the Lord and a God who speaks and reveals himself. And then this carries over on into the New Testament and the idea of word um, and living word and, and Jesus as that living word spoken of God is also very closely connected with it. So you know, you not only get the spirit and presence of God living within you, giving you life, but you also have revelation and expression of that same spirit through the concept of speech. So in a sense, since we're on the Voices in My Head podcast, you know, we could actually say that is God. He is that voice in our head that gives us our voice, you know, to a certain extent. Um, I, I, I just wanted to put a plug for the show in. That's all I you know. uh, He is certainly always speaking. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've likened it at times, and it's not an original thought to me, but an antenna in a car that God is, uh, I believe, all constantly putting out his signal putting out his word to his people but you know if if we don't have the proper receiving device just like radio waves in the air that i can't hear right now and you can't hear um if we don't have the proper receiver we don't hear it you know and so it's 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 as much about um and that even gets us back into the topic of prayer that that prayer is actually a way not to talk to God, but really for God to talk to us and to shape us and form us. And that's a very biblical and especially Old Testament idea that prayer is actually the shaping of our soul, the shaping of, and we're thinking about soul in that context of a living being, something that is God-breathed, that prayer becomes an exercise in being shaped into what God would be ha- having us to be and even becoming like God. So... Um, good stuff. Well, and, and in many ways, I think going connecting to the prayer thing, we have so reduced our spiritual disciplines uh, to a utilitarian model, to where we do prayer or we do fasting or we do pilgrimage or we do tithing in order to get something else. Right. To where we've we've just made the the whole concept of being a disciple sort of this a, a capitalistic economy wrapped up in in the clothing of good spiritual language. That part of the reason we never listen is we don't go um, just assuming that now is a time for me to listen to the voice of the divine speak reality into my life. Um, and uh, I've, I'm trying to remember the quote and who said it, but you know, even the, the discipline of worship, um, uh, one person uh, writes about it as a, uh, a royal waste of time, uh, being able to see something so beautiful that it's no longer utilitarian, but in and of itself um god is is speaking moving but that's getting us way off the topic yeah no no that's that's fine that's where we need to go i want to look at just a couple scripture passages too and i know we've been referencing it but let me just go ahead and read from genesis 2 7 um the lord god formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath which is that that word spirit there we've been talking about the breath of life and man became a living Soul, and that word is nephesh. But it's also interesting that you know, man became a living being is literally what it's saying there, not not a compartmentalized person, but a whole person. Um, but then the animals too in two nineteen 
seem to have sort of this characteristic of Nephish as well. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature Nephish, that was the name thereof. Of course, that's a little bit of a King James translation, but the word's the same. So it's it's kind of interesting that this definition um, that, that God is the life giver to all things. You know, this whole idea that He is has a special place for man, but even the living creatures are considered uh, to an extent nephish. Um, have any thoughts about that and and what that means about our responsibility with animals or anything? Well, I think um, uh, not only having a responsibility to the whole of the cosmos, animals, plants, um, land, and air itself, um, I think there's also, um, you were talking earlier about the, the idea of the voice, and, or I was mentioning voice, but you said, you know, the, the idea of the, the receiver. Um, I've, it's very easy for us to sometimes say, oh, well, that, that little voice in my head, that's God speaking. And, and so we take the next logical step down that very slippery slope and say, oh, well, my conscience is actually God. Mm. Um, and and what's unfortunate about that is God may use your conscience, but to, to suddenly turn your conscience into the Holy Spirit, uh, we've really uh, uh, undeified, to make up a term, uh, the Holy Spirit. We, we've really uh, taken something away from the, uh, the triune Godhead. And then... And, and I have heard that I have heard that preached. I'm sorry, said so said I've actually heard that preached in sermons before that the conscience is the Holy Spirit, and uh, that actually makes us the third person of the Trinity to say that. Yeah, I'm 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 very scared that if the uh, if what if the voice that I sometimes hear inside my head is the Holy Spirit, it's a very different Holy Spirit than I see revealed in Scripture. Exactly. Right. And, and and I really hope that the the Holy Spirit is not reduced to the limits of of my own conscience. Um, and, but, and that's not to say that God can't speak to us, that he is, he is, you know, not able to use that conscience, which is formed through conviction and through, um, uh, through social and, and, and just the way that we're brought up. But, but at the exact same time, the fact that you do see the animals in the creation story also with this idea of, life being brought into them does show that even though we may be at a different different responsibility level in creation as those who are having dominion over slash caretakers not in the sense of control or manipulate but in the sense of caretaker steward that that if we both have this nephish this life force within us that that is us and yet we can be so radically different to where um, the the lion, the tiger, the bears, oh my, they don't actually just sit there and chat with you and, and are able to conceive of thought the way that humanity is, does let us know that our souls may be created differently, but they're still one author of life. Right. Um, well, let's get a little bit into um, some of the New Testament idea too of this because as most of our listeners will know but just in case you don't um, you have the old testament scriptures pretty much most of them written in hebrew and you have this transition to the new testament where the the language is is written um, more in in greek and and matt is a much better master of languages than i am as far as uh, biblical languages so he's a good one to have on the show today um, but the word that is used in greek is really derived from this old testament word for soul it's not a different concept in any way um, but it seems like 
for some reason we've turned it into a different concept and that might be again some of the some of the hellenistic influences upon us um but i believe the word in the new testament is suke for soul yes and that and that's exactly what dwight yokum was talking about in that one song he had oh suke right no i'm kidding <laughs> People probably don't even remember that song. I the Fast as You by Dwight Yoakam. Quick plug for him. I don't know why I brought that up, but anyway. Actually, I'm a big fan of Dwight Yoakam, so that's, I, I like that one. So you got the reference. That's good. We'll have one other person that got that reference. That's good. <laughs> and he is the guest on the show today. Um, so the definition, um, suke, which I may not even be pronouncing that right because I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek words, but I, I did have Greek, so I, I do have some of that under my belt. Um, but the definition in the New Testament, it's based on the definition in the Old um, and like in 1 Corinthians 15.45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, suke. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And um, so th this whole idea, that it's the same word, it's just transliterated over into the Greek. And uh, and so we have like in, in the Gospels, so oftentimes when it talks about soul, we're, we're talking about these... Um, living, breathing human beings in their wholeness and who they are. Um, if anything, Jesus is teaching us um, against the idea of compartmentalizing ourselves. You know that that we are people who are to be whole in who God is, and um, and not to separate and say, you know, well. The devil made me do it or something. I didn't have any control over this or, uh, you know, my soul is bad, but my my body is good or vice versa. My body's bad, but my soul is good. Things like that. Um, there is completeness and wholeness. And and I think, you know, Christ is is very much an advocate of that in the way he talks. Give us your thoughts, Matthew. Um, the Greek term that you're looking at there, the, the suke, has a another Greek equivalent to it that is very clear, close to it called zoe. And and both are translated uh, very regularly as life. Uh, now, zoe is uh, – I can't think of any place right off the top of my head where it's ever translated as soul, uh, whereas uh, suke is, is sometimes translated life, sometimes translated soul. But again, even though, like you said, you're, you're moving into a different time era, you're moving into a world that is very Hellenized, even in the, the, the Israelite area, even in what would be modern day Israel or Jerusalem, those areas, uh, Galilee, where, uh, Jesus would have lived, where most of your New Testament authors are doing their ministry in, until you get to Paul, who, who sort of stretches even further into a Hellenistic world. Um, they're still, even with Paul, uh, especially with Jesus, with the other biblical authors minus Luke, they are still very Hebrew thinking. Even though they're, they're couching their language, they're couching their, their concepts into a, a new thought world, they themselves have not abandoned their Judaism. And so whenever they're carrying this term over, while it is a different term and they're having to deal with some of the issues of what's going on with this this other language world, they are still very, very faithfully Jewish. Uh, they, they don't suddenly say, oh, well, now we're just going to take this Hellenistic view of the body, which is a very divided, uh, a very compartmentalized uh, view of, of the human being. Uh, the 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 Jewish idea never gets away from this idea that we are one singular hol holistic being, and I think unfortunately where a lot of our stumbling occurs 
is not in the, the, the wording of even the New Testament writers. It's the reality that most of what we understand as Christians in the West, and by West I mean uh, Western Europe, um, uh, South America, North America, um, those regions, and, and you could also include Australia just simply because of the influence by there, um, that we have such an influence of Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking Roman lawyers who became Christians later on, individuals like Augustine, uh, individuals like Tertullian, uh, who were so influenced not only by the language of Greek society and Roman society, but also by the very concepts and ways that they grasped the world being as legal minds, uh, totally play, uh, trained in and understanding Plato and having read and been very familiar with his Republic, they bring that into the way that they do theology. And it has very, been very, very influential in shaping the Western mindset as to how we view a, the human being. Is it a holistic life or is it this pieced out compartmentalistic, uh, that is such a word, uh, yeah. with, with all these different pieces and parts, and many of them sometimes either at the mercy of the other or having very little to even do with the other. Yeah. Now, um, I, I want to get into this a little bit too, some some words of Jesus, because I know people are hearing this and a lot of people are going, what? You know, I'm a soul. You're saying there's not heaven or, you know, the afterlife or whatever. And, and I want to get into that a little bit because that's not what we're saying. Um, we're just saying it in a different way because there's a, a vast misunderstanding. But let's look at the New Testament real fast, because this is one passage I know a person could probably look at and, and say, well, there's your proof. There's there's a separation. There's there's two. Uh, Matthew 10, 28 is one I'm thinking of and uh, in the gospel of matthew jesus asks his followers for what uh, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul and uh, it's that word we've been talking about there which which means you know your life your living being your whole person who you are and um and then he says he he also taught his followers to fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, so what what would you say to that, uh, Matthew, when, when we're looking through this and this whole idea? We've just said that the soul is the whole being, the whole person. Um, what do you think about these distinctions there in the New Testament? There was a gentleman who attended the first church I pastored. His name was Everett Watkins, and uh, he is uh, he has gone on to his reward at this point in life, and and uh, is just a, a, a beautiful example of a of a transformed Christian life. But he passed on a a very brilliant word to me one day as we were uh, just greeting one another at the back door to uh, to that church in Albany, and he said, you know, he said uh, he said I think you're a pretty smart guy which I took that as a great compliment. He said, uh, he said, there's, there's some smart people that learn from their own mistakes. He said, that's what's made me smart. He said, be smart enough to learn from the mistakes of others. He said, that will make you really wise. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very um, short memory um, in, in most of American Christianity. And I, and I realize that, that your podcast goes out to a lot broader audience than just that. But but a large portion of your audience is either in that category or at least heavily influenced by that category. And we have made this huge mistake of not listening to the first 300 to 450 years of our history mm-hmm. uh, of the church that has settled a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is we've read the text outside the tradition that produced those texts. 
and we've forgotten most of the lessons that they fought and died and gave their blood to help us to understand. Right. Um, the one who would read that passage out of Matthew and suddenly separate everything out would be like saying, well, I have a heart and I have a lung and I have a kidney and I have a liver and I have a kneecap and fear the one who can break your kneecap and, and puncture the heart. But but don't worry about the one so much who could just, you know, mess with your liver. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, yes, there are. There are different parts of my body uh you can you can distinguish them uh someday when i'm i'm cold and dead and just before i start pushing up daisies you could do an autopsy on me and point out each one but truth be told you take any of those out well, minus the kneecap um i'm not gonna last very long uh, the the rest of me while the brain is not directly connected to the liver um the the brain is not gonna last very long without the liver um, it's, it's part of who we are. And, and Jesus's description there, um, realizing that he is speaking into a Greek speaking, uh, Hellenistic influenced world uh, is speaking to a world that is very compartmentalized. But for, for Christ to say those things, he's recognizing the complexity of the human life. Mm -hmm. But just because we are a complex human life does not mean that each piece of that life is a distinctive existence outside and outside of the rest of it that it in and of itself is existing. Right. Well, that's a very a very good explanation. I appreciate that. And uh, and and again, Jesus is is talking about the whole person. And uh, if anything, giving more um, more authority to God. You know, in some ways, in the way he's speaking that way. Um, you know that that maybe man is able, like you said, to to wound a kneecap, but God God has the whole package. You know, <laughs> all belong to him. Um, and and I want to look real quick. I'm just going through some of my notes here. Um, we've talked about nephish, we've talked about suke, and uh, I just I just want to make clear that these are not naturally immortal in Scripture. They die. So um, they're I, I don't know how exactly. To say this exactly, I guess um, if we're talking about the concept of immortality and and what we mean by that, um, death in Scripture is conceived as the moment when an individual's nephish is is done. You know, their soul is died. You know that it's that it's gone. And so I think I think that is an interesting concept today um, because we usually think of well, when the body dies, then the soul continues to live on. Um, there's not a there's not a differentiation in the wording there in scripture uh, when a person dies they're dead you know <laughs> um, and and what I mean by that is our understanding of it I, I think has to be tweaked a little bit to understand that um, that our God our, our belief and our hope and our faith in him in an afterlife is that God is making all things new that God is the creator, that God is the recreator, that um, whatever happens, you know, I, I think it's N.T. Wright that talks about heaven, sort of what we know about it is almost like a signpost pointing into the fog because uh, none of us have been there at this point. But the idea that we can still rest in our God, 
you know, and and uh, so anyway, all, all my babbling and going on about this is the concept of an immaterial soul that is separate from and and that's surviving from the body is a very common thought today, and it's among uh, scholars, but it's not really found in ancient Hebrew beliefs because the word nephesh was never intended to mean an immortal soul or uh, anything like that that can you know survive after the death of the body or or whatever. So. When we get into that, and I know that you know we talk about it in church all the time, um, the, the way that we talk about it often is in, in very much that uh, the opposite of that. Um, so what what do we mean then when we start talking about? Because I I'm not coming on here to say there's not an afterlife. Um, I, I just want us to look at what the Bible actually says. So give me some thoughts, Matt, um, when we talk about what it means then if our life is given by God, and as we leave this world, our life leaves, but we're still with God. What 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 are your thoughts on that idea? Well, if I can to explain, let me let me sort of do it in three steps. Do a a here a not quite there and a there. Um, um, let's start off with the here. I think one of the problems is is we have we have so embraced this non-biblical concept, this very uh, Greek philosophical concept of soul is separate from the body right. because we're still buying into an old heresy of the church. And that is this idea that, you know, that the soul exists in there and the soul is always good. And, and it's a very Gnostic mentality. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, Christianity today is, is very much flirting with the concepts of, of what used to exist in the New Testament days of Gnosticism. Um, that that there's a soul that exists in there, and the soul's good, and the soul always wants good things, and the soul is just longing for this day that it can someday be reunited with God, because obviously Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with God, and so that's of course, has to be the only thing it possibly mean. <laughs> and so the, the soul is trapped in there, but the body, the flesh, and, and the New Testament concept for this is sarks. Uh, this fleshly uh, concept, and, and Paul is even going to play with these words, not literal, uh, but he's going to play with these words in Romans 7, which has got to one of the most commonly misunderstood and misinterpreted passages out of all of Scripture. Uh, this idea, you know, I, I, you know, there's a part of me that wants to do good, but it can't, and there's this part of me that uh, always has power over me to do bad, and, and it sounds really good, and it gives us a good excuse to say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, and I'm just like Paul when he talks about in Romans 7, and even though I want to do good things, I can't, and it's this whole body's problem because the body can only do evil, but someday the soul's going to be set free. But they keep failing to read what may be one of the most beautiful passages out of Romans that connects it to chapter 8 and says, but wait, 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 there is freedom from this life as I am now understanding it where I want to do good but can't. There is now no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus, that there is real freedom. And chapter 8 launches you into not just this poor, pitiful Christian who wants to do good but can't in chapter 7. This is the confession of someone who realizes that there's real life to be out there, but I'm living in a body of death. But only can Christ set me free. And Christ doesn't set you free and say, now when you die and I get rid of all that old nasty flesh, which, by the way, I created and trapped you in in the first place. Right. (laughs) Wait, wait. I created the human being, the whole human being. And whenever he got done creating us, if I'm not mistaken, he said, this is good stuff. I meant to do this. Uh, I, I like what I've done here. 
He's, he's happy with creation, including the human being, the whole human being. But what we find is that in the here and the now, God is longing to redeem us from our bodies of death, from our bodies of sin, and to give us not only this sort of when-you-die guarantee your soul gets to go free, as if though it's some really big game of Monopoly, uh, but what he's actually saying is, is I want to redeem all of you so that you can live beyond the power of sin and death right now. Right. That's the pure part of it, of, of trying to connect the, the soul, the body back together to a whole human being. Mm-hmm. Not quite yet. Um, this is where we get to the part where we, we're going to, you know, Lord willing, if he tarries, um, sooner or later, we're going to turn cold and die. Um, as one, uh, pastoral friend of mine here in the area once said, he goes, uh, he said, what we sometimes fail to realize is that heaven is, uh, eternity's great bus stop. Um, it's not the final destination, but you got to get through there first. Right. <laughs> And and we only get to see glimpses. Uh, I love that you pointed out N.T. Wright's quote that it is signpost in the fog. And and I realize that this is a uh, a story to illustrate a point, but it's one of our best glimpses of that in between time is when Jesus gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he does tell a very detailed story of where uh, both in death are in some place. Um, it, it is to some degree. um uh, not quite earth. Um, it, it is, uh, to some degree disembodied, but there is still a conversation. There is still the life of the rich man. There is still the life of this poor man, Lazarus, who is held in Abraham's bosom. And there's this conversation that goes back and forth. And, but yet we see that in both cases, neither are in their final destination. Neither are in this place to where, and this is how the rest of eternity looks, you know, the, the, there's this disembodied bad guy in a place where there's a lot of suffering and there's this life of this good guy, this poor, uh, Lazarus guy who's in Abraham's bosom. But we also read within scripture, and you've already mentioned it already, this idea of new creation, that there is a resurrection. And, um, it says it in Daniel, um, you also see evidence of it in the New Testament. But it's very clear that this is a two-part resurrection. It says there is a resurrection unto life, and there is also a resurrection unto condemnation. And when we are resurrected, the very concept of resurrection isn't, well, the souls just get together and we kind of hang out. Uh, we are, in fact, a bodily resurrection, the fullness of life, both the sarks and the suke, the, the flesh and the soul, one human being life stands before God in judgment and that new creation and, and going back to the Genesis story. And I think part of what we need to understand with the nephesh of the animals, if he is recreating, if he is redeeming the whole of creation, I can't imagine that in that new life, in that, in that new Jerusalem, that new heavens, new earth, that there's not horses and lions and tigers and, and, and all the beauty of his creation trees and everything that goes with it fully redeemed without the effects of our human brokenness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can't just be a soul redeemed. Otherwise, Jesus only did half the job. Right. Um, and I've come to redeem creation. Hey, that's a, an excellent, uh, what, something weird going on with my audio here. But do you hear me okay still? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, excellent, Matt. Thank you for explaining that to us. I think you did a much better job than I would be able to. Um, because I, I talk with people about this because to me, um, this makes life even more precious. You know, we talk about having a consistent ethic of human life, and we usually stop at, you know, the unborn. 
but the fact is all of life um, is is precious and I, I think from from the the beginning and the, the very early stages before we could even almost identify them as a human you know when um, when conception begins um, to the point even at the end of our life um, there are people who are made um, in the image of God and like you said uh, about when God created us he saw it was good you know and and so this whole idea of of uh, following Christ and following God and and living out the kingdom of God in the present is all part of this idea of us coming back to finding our true humanness. You know that that God created us human and the fall has made us less human. Um, and and the fact that actually our redemption is to find that good human place. Once again, that God created us to be and created us to be for. And so there's a lot of mystery there. So I, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea that I in some way think that we're dead and then it's done and that I don't have some sort of hope in the resurrection. I just would believe that, that my belief, I think, is more in line with what Scripture's actual thought is that, um, like Matt has described so well, this idea of resurrection and what that would mean. And it also makes us that much more responsible uh, responsible for um, what w- the way we live our lives, whether we are a citizen of this kingdom of God, whether there is this, this idea of we are going to be standing in judgment for our lives and what we have done with them, you know, and um, I, I don't, I don't want to get into karma or anything. It's not, it's not anything like that because there certainly is, is grace. Um, but I just think it makes our life all that more important, especially when I think um, I, the only time I can think of in Scripture when Jesus really refers to the afterlife is when he talks about, you know, I go to prepare. A place for you, you know. He doesn't say mansion, by the way. We should strike those hymns from our hymn book that talk about mansions and things. Pretty much a room. Um, yeah, yeah. I prepare I, your room. Exactly. I prepare your room, um, and maybe a couple other places. You you are referred to the the parable he tells, you know, about Lazarus and the rich man. And um, but again, those are parables. Um, but Jesus mostly is talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, to to quote my friend Eddie Kirkland's song in the here and now, um, and it's that something that that continues on into whatever that may be in in the next life. We none of us have been there, so we don't know. I I actually am, those books drive me crazy, like the the Heaven is for Real book, you know, or that that has just become this huge bestseller. Which could not be more opposite of what scripture teaches about, you know, the soul, you know, <laughs> or um, things like that. Um, that we talk about, no, I went to heaven and I spent, you know, 10 days there and I talked with grandpa and I did this and that and walked around here and the other. And, and I'm like, well, that's very, that's very Plato. That's very good. I don't know how Christ that is, but it's very, you know. Um, so, and, anyway. And we, we've, we've come up with so much stuff that we've said more for our comfort and less for truth. Right. Um, and, and, and again, you, you, you alluded to this already, but life becomes considerably more valuable, considerably more beautiful when we understand that God is redeeming the fullness of us. Now, I understand 
that there exists. Now, I'm not going to say that I understand exactly what's going on, but I understand there exists this issue that that there are people who have already passed on and there are people who will continue to pass on until this there is a resurrection coming. There is a moment where history will cease to exist and and God will will fix all things. I see that in scripture and I can't, I, 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 my, if there is no resurrection, um, as, a um, who, well, I'm trying to think the guy's name, um, uh, T.W. Willingham said, you know, if there's not a hell to shun and a heaven to gain, and if there is no resurrection, there's a whole lot of good corn whiskey going to waste. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, I, I want to, to, to assure you that I, I believe wholeheartedly in this resurrection that is coming. And even Paul says, if there's not a resurrection, we're some pitiful folk. Exactly. Um, we, we believe in that and, and that there is coming a, a consummation of history. But at the exact same time, I can't even begin to pretend to understand what goes on in that meantime. You know, we, we're at best making guesses in the dark. Right. He, and, and truth be told, if we're making guesses in the dark, if it is not something he specifically says to us, you need to have all these details, then we don't need the details. We can speculate all we want to, but truth be told, there is coming a day when there's a resurrection. And it won't just be these disembodied souls floating around. It will be the whole of life. Um, one of my... Um, one of my favorite authors is Mark Twain, and back in uh, uh, 1907, in uh, Harper's Magazine, he released a short story that was called uh, Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. And uh, Twain uh, definitely never comes across as being a, uh, a heartfelt believer in the gospel, uh, but he is an incredible satirist um, and beautifully um, critiques the church on more than one occasion. Oh, yes. Um, and, uh, and in this particular uh, visit, which uh, this particular story in Captain Stormfield's uh, visit to heaven, he actually uh, has to find which heaven he belongs in first, which is kind of a nice little uh, 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 stick at the way that churches do denominations. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, as the story goes on, he sort of fulfills all the stereotypes of the afterlife of, of a disembodied soul. And it's beautiful because by the time you get to the end of it, you, you get this image of his guide who is sort of this Homer uh, type uh, character, almost from Dante's uh, divine comedy uh, who has been guiding him all along, who says, you know, eventually you're going to figure out that, that you, you have to get past all this, this stuff that you've made up before you're actually going to be able to encounter the real grace of God. Hmm. And isn't, it's isn't, a beautiful satire of, of actually dealing with some of our absolutely ludicrous uh, conclusions that we come up with without logically thinking them through. Because truth be told, if you and I really bought into this whole idea that the sarks, the body, is this broken thing, that we just got to get rid of, and the soul inside is what God really saves and wants us to spend eternity with him in this pie-in-the-sky place, then the logical conclusion, the, the best, smartest thing that you and I could do would be to find someone, get them to confess that Jesus is Lord, and then shoot them. Right. <laughs> and I know that that sounds bitter and cold and heartless and, and in light of, all that has taken place with with Newtown and the gun issues, I am not by any way, shape, or form trying to make light of the seriousness of guns. But in all reality, if we follow out the logic 
of that that there's this disembodied soul that's just waiting to get out and go home because I, I'm I think suicide is the the absolute worst imaginable thing I can come up with. Um, but but it logically makes sense in that model that that the best thing we could do is get them to confess and then shoot them so that way they can't go back on it unless we're you know good Calvinists that believe you can't uh, but <laughs> try to get them out of that jail as soon as possible. And the best thing we could do is get everybody saved, kill off the human race, and have one sacrificial lamb at the very end of it all who's willing to off himself, and then we'd all be in glory. And that's just as stupid and as ludicrous as it sounds. That's a logical conclusion of a disembodied soul. Yeah, and that's very true. That's very true. Um, yeah. huh. Wow, and this I can I can see the can of worms. I almost wish people would be able to give us feedback as we're talking about this because I know some people's minds are being blown right now um, <laughs> thinking about this and this thought. And, and we do welcome uh, comments, any sort of emails you want to send to the podcast. Uh, you can go through my website or through the uh, Voices in My Head Facebook page. I feel like this is an ongoing conversation, um, and, and I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, – I'm running out of time, but I want to talk about real quick – we have made um, such a a fatal error in in my estimation uh, of preaching this got this false gospel of the soul for so long that you know where Jesus has told us in scripture the great commission is to go into all the world and make disciples not make decisions you know um, and it, it's interesting be, being a Christian does not mean that you prayed a prayer a sinner's prayer and uh, as my friend Brian Zahn has has said in some of his sermons you know that's not being a Christian he's like, I say he says, I say sinner's prayers every day because I need that. I need to understand that I am a person who needs repentance. But that's not what makes me a Christian. It didn't get my soul right for heaven. He said, what I'm, what I'm more about is I don't want to make, um, I don't want to win souls for heaven. I want to make disciples for Christ here on earth, you know. And, um, and I, I really think that that is the, the thing that we have done wrong. And and I, I heard it a lot, you know. I don't know how many times I got my soul saved in church growing up, you know, um, or at camp or things like that. And uh, I'm I'm grateful that you know I, I grew up under a father who was very much about discipleship. Um, but but it still slipped through, you know, this whole idea that uh, you know, yeah. well, if we just we just got to get the stamp on the soul and then we're we'll be ready, you know. And uh, that is, in my estimation, heresy. You know, I don't I don't think Jesus ever talks about that. I don't think he's concerned at all about getting into your heart. Um, I, I think he wants to get into your heart in the same way that the one you love gets into your heart. You know, and and overtakes in that way. I don't think it's a magical potion as much as it is a divine romance um, that that begins. And I, I think if we're going to talk in any way about that, about you know, do you want to come uh, and accept Jesus? Uh, I I think it's more if we talked about um, prayer forming us. It's more that we need to become acceptable to Jesus, um, that that He would so transform and change us, and and everybody's included in that. It, it doesn't matter what human you are, what belief you hold. Um, with with God, my full belief is that all of us need to be transformed and um, and changed into His light. 
So, so believe it or not, Matt and I are not describing, you know, heresy today that says, well, just, you know, you've just totally desold us or whatever, like you devein a shrimp. Um, it's not, it's not that at all. We're actually saying that there is much more weight to this, and there's much more weight to what Jesus taught. You'll find much more in the Sermon on the Mount if you go to Matthew 5 through 7, um, about what Jesus actually taught versus what we, uh, sometimes teach from the pulpit falsely in our churches. And, and maybe we can close with this thought. Matt, we recently at my church this past Sunday night had a, an evening of prayer. Yes. And it was called an evening of prayer for the lost. Uh, great idea. You know, we've talked about prayer before as, as us being formed and, uh, and us being shaped. There is a, a part of prayer that's supplication where we actually, uh, pray for ourselves and pray for others, but that's not the main part of prayer. The main part of prayer is actually being formed. And uh, sometimes the words that we say actually um, help us to be shaped in prayer rather than trying to get something from God. So when I go to a, a night like this, I, I realize as I walk into the church, when I walk in and I think that I'm praying for a person who is lost, I realize that I automatically am praying for something different than 90% of the people in my congregation are praying for. Because most of them, I, I found as we had our prayer time, are praying that people will come to a decision uh, point in their life. And I realize that, well, here I am praying for the lost, but I'm actually praying that people will come to a disciple point in their life and and not that they'll just make a decision and pray a quick prayer but that they'll actually be completely um, transformed so uh, do you do you think that changes the idea of what it means to be lost at all when we look in this new context that's not really new at all but actually ancient <laughs> about the soul that it's the whole person do you, do you think that that forces us to look differently at what it means when it says we like pray for the lost or reaching out to the lost. Yeah, and and I think it reduces. Well, I think I think it has a definite effect in that it, it turns what we were praying for into again. Am I praying for? And, and I know we actually said this was off topic, or I said it was off topic earlier, but um, we've turned that prayer back into a utility. That Lord, I'm I'm praying. And I'm not saying that you don't ever expect God to move uh, as you're praying, but I'm praying expecting said result of a decision. Right. And, and it really has missed the point altogether from what you see revealed within Scripture, revealed within even the way God works in creation, revealed within the last 2,000 years of church history, revealed even within our own reason when we think it through. Um, and so I would, I would answer that with this thought. Only Gnosticism reduces salvation to a cognitive ascent, and only Christianity elevates salvation to a new life now. Hmm. And I think with that thought in mind, if all salvation is, as I've listened to the preacher preach, incredible apologetics, and I say, you know what? I agree with you. I, I believe Jesus exists. I believe he died for my sins and that I need salvation, and I want him to be Lord. And unfortunately, we have reduced that, that cognitive ascent to meaning salvation. And unfortunately, that's all that happened was, is I, I cognitively agreed with what you told me. So, you know, the best, the best, uh, uh, that we can do is we've actually turned not only to Gnosticism, but almost to consumerism. I've put up a good advertiser and now you're about advertisement and you bought my product. But only Christianity says, 
wait, 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 in Christ, I can not only be made anew, or not only not only find you know transformation, but I can truly find life more abundant. And and I know I'm not the first person to have ever said this, but uh, I've heard it in sermons before, and it's it's well put, and it's good Christian theology. Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but he came to make dead people alive. Mm. And going and praying for the lost person is actually probably more akin to um, instead of praying for somebody to make a decision. We're praying that the person who is on the table dying will be alive the next time we see them. Hmm. That's praying for the lost. Yeah. Wow. That's good stuff. Well, maybe that's a good place to end our conversation for today. And again, if you have any uh, questions or comments, listeners, you can feel free as always to use the Voices in My Head phone line. You can leave a comment for us or you can leave it on the page. I have a feeling this might spark a little bit of debate and discussion among some of the listeners, and I welcome that. I I think that's a good and healthy and positive thing. Uh, Maybe you disagree completely, but we're just trying to come at it from the perspective of people who have studied Scripture, uh, studied the languages, and understand have an understanding of what we talked about a few weeks ago when I had um, my guest on and we talked about how to read the Bible uh, with Dr. McKenzie and uh, that that the Bible, there's much more to it there than just what we read in the English. And, uh, and I don't mean just sitting there and meditating on it either. I mean there's actually a purpose behind it, uh, although meditation is good and, and necessary. So You did uh, leave out and people who study Spider-Man. And people who study Spider-Man, that's right. It's kind of interesting. We talked very little about Spider-Man, really. I hope we didn't lose too many people who weren't interested in Spider-Man in the beginning because uh, really there's a lot more at stake here, and that was just simply a, a story. So let me ask you as, we, as we're closing out today, what did you think of uh, – are, are you excited about the Superior Spider-Man? Are you indifferent to it? Do you – I mean, what, what do you think? I am uh, I am still in mourning. Um as I've, I've shared with you before the story of uh, I, I have met Spider-Man, uh, contrary to some people's arguments against that. Uh, <laughs> I have met Spider-Man. He was uh, the television actor whenever he was at Tombstone Junction ah. back in 83, 84, something like that. And one of the coolest experiences of my life because I was the last person in line that he signed the autograph because it was time for him to go take his break. And the dude literally got up, picked me up, set him on his shoulders. He's in his full Spider-Man garb. And took me to the there at Tombstone Junction, this ride where you get on a train and there's the whole um, um, uh, train hijacking, uh, at which point um, he, he puts me on the train. And, and you know, I'm four or five year old kid. I, I'm literally this is the coolest thing that could ever happen. And um, and so the train goes out, goes around. And there's a point where the train very unpolitically correctly uh, gets hijacked by uh, Native Americans who then, you know, there's a a, uh, a cowboys who come and save the day. But there's a point where the uh, train is getting hijacked that there just happened to be this four or five year old kid stood up in the middle of the train and shouts to the top of his lungs. Everyone, please calm down. Spider-Man will save us. Uh, the uh, the co- the uh, sheriff who was supposed to be getting on the train actually fell off backwards. He was laughing so hard, and my <laughs> face, she said, had never been that red. <laughs> well, so, great way to end that story today. It's good. Is dead. So yeah, so actually, we have to realize that if Spider Man is dead, we actually do need another savior. That Spider Man isn't here to save us anymore. That's right. And uh, but I am willing to say to uh, Stanley or Disney or whoever I have to say it to now, 
Um, I will forgive if three, uh, three or four episodes from now this all turns out to be a dream sequence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going there. I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this whole thing. But uh, not to bore listeners, though. We can talk more about this off the air. But thank you very much, Matthew Cole, for being one of the voices in my head this week. Thanks. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.